Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this season. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. May our hearts adore you, our Lord and God, our Savior, our King, our King of peace, our shepherd. May that be our heart's desire today, this season, that you would be adored. May you be magnified in what is said this morning, that our hearts would ascend to you and adore and rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you love Christmas music? It's one of the church's favorite aspects of the season. We look forward to it all year long and start getting the nervous twitch about April. <laughs> Whole family can't wait to listen to that first Christmas song at 12.01 a.m. Eastern time, the morning after Thanksgiving Day. If you listen to Christmas music before then, it's okay. God will forgive you. Yeah, that's what Christmas is about, so yes. One of the more unusual songs that we sing at Christmas time is the one we just finished. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Have you ever noticed the somber tone of this carol, so unlike the other carols? That it's written in a minor key, evoking feelings such as mourning, aching, yearning? Well, that's because it's meant to do that, because it's a song of Advent, a song of longing, of anticipation, of yearning for and looking forward to the coming of the King while dwelling presently in the midst of pain and adversity. It's a song that could easily have been sung in Zechariah's day. You see, even though some had returned from exile, most were still in it. And even those who had returned were still under foreign domination. They were experiencing persecution at every turn. Even though they were rebuilding the temple, the presence of the Lord, which it symbolized, was not in their midst. The cloud of glory, which had represented the presence of the Lord when Solomon had completed the first temple, was nowhere to be found. And they had no king. Rather, they had the governor, Zerubbabel, who was subservient to Darius, the Persian ruler. But they knew that such a time would someday come to an end. Promises had been made of a future king, a great king of Israel, who would once again sit on the throne of David. The Old Testament is filled with this anticipation, an anticipation of the people of God for this coming king that had been prophesied so many times in the Old Testament scriptures. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And so Israel desperately longed for the arrival, 
the advent of this prophesied king who would deliver them. Hence the chorus of this song crescendos with the encouragement of a promise that was sure and certain. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. The line echoes the central verse of our passage today. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice, rejoice, says this verse. Your king shall come to you, O Israel. Which means that this is another prophecy. Another promise from the Lord of this future king, the Messiah. Just any king would not do, though. After all, one needn't gaze too far into Israel's history to realize why. From the very beginning of their earthly monarchy, Israel had had kings who were corrupt. Kings who forced labor on their sons and daughters, took the best of their fruits and fields and vineyards, and who taxed them unjustly. Kings who lied, cheated, stole, defrauded, murdered, sacrificed children, committed adultery and idolatry, made alliances with foreign nations, and who even sold their own people into captivity. Hence the reason that they presently were a people without a king and a kingdom. So what excited their hopes and inspired their rejoicing and shouting was not the mere existence of a king, but the person, the nature of this particular prophesied king and the work that he would do, who he is and would be to them. This is the emphasis here in these chapters. Not just that a king will come, but what this king will be like and what we, he will do for his people. Now, I want to remind you as we get into this, that Zechariah is not written in a chronologically linear fashion. What is written is not intended to communicate a series of events that happen one after another. Rather, the main idea of this passage is to communicate a picture, a portrait of the coming king through these various events, phrases, metaphors, characteristics, so that the people see and trust in this king. The focus is not the events, but the events are the medium through which the reader perceives the true focus, the king. In the past, I've used the analogy of a photo mosaic. You've seen them before, where a large image is formed from a bunch of smaller, more detailed images. Each smaller image contributes to the larger picture. It's the same concept here. Zechariah is providing a bunch of thoughts and concepts and truths, images, attributes, and actions, all that describe the past, the present, and future reality in order to create a larger picture of the one they portray, the coming king. So, who was this one they were to behold, to rejoice in? I know what you're going to say. It's Jesus! Jesus! Would you be right? 
It was indeed Jesus. He was the coming king, the one being described here in Zechariah. We know this because verse 9 is fulfilled down to the letter when we're told that a large crowd went out to meet Jesus crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. This wasn't the first time that Jesus was recognized as the promised coming king. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Thus we sing, born a king on Bethlehem's plain. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. What was future to Zechariah and his original audience is past to us. The King that he and they long for has come. Where they looked forward to the advent of the king, we look back at the advent of the king. The angel announced to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Noel, Noel, born is the king of Israel. Joy to the world, the Lord is what? He has come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus, God in Christ, is this king. But why then do we still sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? And why do we still observe Advent? I'm glad you asked. Because we live in a time where we remember and celebrate the first advent of the king, and yet we do what? We yearn and long for the second advent of the king. We look back and rejoice at the coming of the king in a little town called Bethlehem beneath the gaze of an innkeeper's donkey. And again, some 30 years later, as this king entered Jerusalem, mounted on the back of another donkey. And yet we still rejoice and look forward in anticipation of the second coming of this king, mounted this time on a white horse to consummate his eternal kingdom. Many of these prophecies of Zechariah are already fulfilled and are presently realized in and through Jesus' first coming, while still many others await their fulfillment and their consummation at his second coming. You know, the beauty of living in our day is that we can see and savor how Jesus, the king in the manger and in the streets of the ancient Near East, and entering Jerusalem on the colt and on the cross, and triumphing over death and his resurrection, embodied these kingly Old Testament prophecies. All, 
all while looking forward to how this very same Jesus will someday fully and finally consummate every single one of those promises. What does it all have in common? What's the one thing that it all has in common? Jesus, the King. That's what it all has in common. That's where Zechariah is pointing. Look at the king. Behold the king. Zechariah exhorts his listeners to behold this coming king who he is about to portray. And then later in the passage, he declares of this king, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Mm. How great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. And so that's where we, will do, where we will spend the rest of this message. Beholding, gazing upon, rejoicing in, and adoring Jesus Christ, our King, as foreshadowed in Zechariah and realized in his coming. That is the sole intended application and theme of this message. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. The imagery and descriptions of this king are as abundant as they are diverse here in these two chapters. I see four predominant truths about this king being described here with many, many, many. I, I sat there looking at my computer going, gosh, I listed like 45 things. I was like, yeah, that's a long sermon. So I picked four <laughs> with umbrellas. Yes, Bill said thank you. It would have been a Bill-length email sermon. <laughs> the first of these four truths is found in a group of connected phrases that are repeated more than 35 times in 29 verses. Talk about repetition. Mike talked about them in his sermon. They are, I have, I will, I will, I will, we will, the Lord will, the Lord of hosts will. Who will? Is it the Lord will? Or the king will. Yes! Yes! It's all descriptive of the Lord, God in Christ, redeeming a people for himself. The first thing that we see upon reading through this passage is that this king, Jesus, is himself the king, the Lord of hosts. Let me remind you, of how the reign of Israel's earthly kings began. It wasn't pretty. The people had rejected the current rule established by God and demanded of Samuel an earthly king. Like, you know, like all the other nations. When Samuel took this request or their demand to the Lord, the Lord replied, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected me, or they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
Israel's earthly monarchy was forged in the fires of rebellion and rejection of their one and only true king, the Lord himself. So who must this future king be for them? The Lord himself. No lesser king will do. No lesser king could save them from their sins, their rebellion from and rejection of him as their king. No lesser king could deliver them from their true enemies, death and hell. No lesser king could be their eternal protector and provider. And no lesser king could redeem them and restore them to right standing in the covenants. This is the prophesied king in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, and in Zechariah. Sing and rejoice, says Zechariah, O daughter of Zion, in chapter 2. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Chapter 8, as Josh preached last week, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of them. As the New Testament opened, we read of the angels, or of the angel of the Lord, who appears to Joseph, saying, Behold! That one sounds familiar, huh? A lot of these beholds. Look! The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't it say, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst? Yes. God with us. Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For in him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Thus we sing and sang this morning, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to ponder this truth? The Lord God of hosts, the infinite, all-powerful, limitless God becoming man. The creator of this massive world on which we live and of the powerful sun, which a million of these worlds would fit into, that heats our world from 93 million miles away and a billion, billion, billion other suns just like it. That one coming as a helpless baby. I, you talk about miracles. People, oh, miracles, oh, miracles. That. It's perhaps the greatest miracle of them all. Infinite God. Itty bitty baby. Behold the king. The Lord will do for Israel, for his people, and be for them all that a king does and is to his people. 
God himself in the person of Jesus, God in Christ, will rule over his covenant people. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. Point number two. This coming king is further described in verse 9 as righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. In other words, he is a savior king. The truth of his being a savior permeates this section. 9.16, on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. 10.6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. Verse 8 of chapter 10, I have redeemed them. But before we go there, we can't just look past that word righteous. Righteous in having salvation is he. For it is this very trait that immediately sets him apart to have salvation. He is righteous. All that he does is right. It's in perfect accord with the law. But it's not just that all he does is righteous, but he himself by his very nature is righteous. Peter, Ananias, and Paul all call Jesus the righteous one. We sang of the righteous one this morning. The apostle John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is why this virgin birth is such a big deal. In order for anyone to carry salvation, to be able to save, well, they must be able to save. If they are unrighteous like the rest of us, then they need salvation too, right? It'd be like a drowning man trying to save others who are drowning. What happens? Everybody dead. Jesus was born of a virgin and therefore without a sin nature, born righteous. And because he is righteous, he is able to bring salvation. Now, obviously, we are not talking about, we are talking about far more than physical salvation here, right? Physical deliverance is always temporary because all people will eventually die. And then comes the judgment. Have they been delivered from the penalty of their sins before a holy God? A couple weeks ago, I finished my rehabilitation class, cardiac rehabilitation. The class was filled with people recovering from some kind of heart procedure, surgery thing. And one of the traditions that they had in the class was on a person's graduation day, they would ask them, do you have any words of wisdom for the rest of the class? People would usually answer with, stick with it, keep it going. You guys are doing great. It's totally worth it. Well, I knew my graduation day was approaching. And I would have the opportunity to share words of wisdom with the class. A couple dozen people. You know where this is going, don't you? 
So I prepared for my little 30 seconds, practiced my little 30 seconds, and like clockwork the day of, they said, Jason, do you have any words of wisdom? Well, I do as a matter of fact. I said, we've all been given a new lease on life, a temporary reprieve from standing before our righteous and just judge. My advice is, don't waste it. Don't waste this opportunity to get right with God. I said this because everyone in that room had received a temporary reprieve. Temporary deliverance from physical death. But it was only temporary. They will all someday die. And then comes the judgment. Have they been delivered from the penalty of their sins against a holy God? But that wasn't all I said. I had 30 seconds, remember. (laughs) Because if that had been all I said, that would have left them with a big unanswered question, wouldn't it? How? How, Jason, do I get right with God? It's the same question Israel needed to ask, wasn't it? And the answer is in verse 11 of Zechariah 9. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Because of the blood of my covenant. Does that sound familiar? It's not because it was often spoken of in the Old Testament. It wasn't. It's only mentioned one other time, actually, in the entire Old Testament. But it's familiar because Jesus used it at his Last Supper, and we often use it as Wolf did this morning when taking communion. He read this passage. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the covenant of which Zechariah prophesies, the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the great high priest and king, the branch, the Lord Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Remember verse 9? Righteous and having salvation is he humble. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
I finished my little talk to the class with this. Don't waste it. Don't waste this opportunity to get right with God through trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that those who trust in him would be forgiven and have everlasting life. The gospel in 30 seconds, folks. The gospel in a sentence. Get right with God through trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that those who trust in him would be forgiven and have everlasting life. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This king, the one who wore a crown of thorns, who was on the cross, who was hailed with the shouts of Hosanna as he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, came for this very purpose. This is the one whom the angels in the fields proclaim, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Nails Spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. The Lord of hosts has done for us and is to us all that a sufficient Savior King does and is for his people. The Lord himself in the person of Jesus Christ has redeemed his people and he will hold us safely until the day of redemption is consummated. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. All y'all are Israel. Number three, the picture of this future king, humble and riding on a donkey, symbolized more than Jesus' triumphal entry. This act indicated that this coming king would be a king of peace. You see, in the ancient world, leaders rode horses if they rode to war but donkeys if they came in peace. Solomon, a king of peace, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey the day that he was coronated as the new king of Israel. This then was not only a picture of a king, a king riding in on a horse or on a donkey into Jerusalem, but of a peaceful king. Verse 10 says that he will cut off the chariots, the war horses, the battle bow. These symbolized an end to the main instruments of war. This king will do what? Will proclaim peace to the nations. And his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now what's interesting, if you guys have been reading through this, if you haven't, I'm going to tell you anyway. So, 
<clears throat> and it's somewhat puzzling as well as it is interesting are the other passages in this section that speak much about war and warlike imagery. For instance, verse 13 through 15 of chapter 9, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and will be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. Verse 5 of 10, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Verse 7, then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So what's up with that? Why the seemingly contradictory concepts of war and peace? How do these concepts come together? How do they coalesce? Well, there is no peace without victory. It's like in that glorious scene at the end of the return of the king, at the coronation of Aragorn, after all the enemies have been defeated and he is crowned, he says, let us together share in the days of peace. Their enemies had been defeated. The enemies of the people of God must be defeated before they can and will dwell in peace, before they become like a mighty warrior and their hearts be glad and rejoice in the Lord. And what are the enemies of the people of God? I'm glad you asked. Satan, the unrepentant wicked, sin, death, and hell. That is in part what these, these enemies were symbolizing in this passage. These are what separated God's people from true peace. In Romans, we read that we are more than conquerors. Conquerors, that's an interesting word. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These concepts coalesce in Christ himself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to this verse. Ephesians 2. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace and has broken down. Well, that's rather violent. He has broken down something. He has. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So making peace through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see it? He killed the hostility. He had to kill the hostility. And he, became, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off 
and peace to those who were near. Jesus is peaceful, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace. There will be no end. And yet, he conquers. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Hmm. Jesus brings peace to earth. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And yet he makes war with righteousness. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. They coalesce in Christ. We find peace through him conquering. And we conquer through him securing our peace. Mm. (laughs) We find peace through him conquering sin and death. Satan, he crushes them. And we conquer. We are more than conquerors through him securing our peace. I love the words of the great Scottish preacher, James Stewart. He said this. I wish I could do a Scottish accent with it, but I can't. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red, hot, scorching words against sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they were expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away in their mad rush from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last, he himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confront us in the gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Thus we sing... For Advent, O come, O rod of Jesse's stem, and from every foe deliver them. Bring them in victory over the grave. Victory over the grave. We have victory over the grave. Why? Because of our conquering king. O come, our day spring from on high, disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Kick them out. Get rid of them. 
Oh, bid our sad division cease and be yourself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. The Lord of hosts has done for us and is to us all that a king of peace does and is for his people. The Lord himself in the person of Jesus Christ has brought peace to his own and he will continue to provide it fully and finally until he brings everlasting, never-ending peace to earth. Hmm. Rejoice. (laughs) Do you rejoice this Christmas season? Rejoice! So I kept writing at the top of my sermon so I'd remember, rejoice! I'm up here to rejoice! Rejoice, O Israel! Your king has come! The final predominant image that we see of this coming king is as a shepherd. The people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. He cares for his flock. He's a shepherd. From him, this shepherd king shall come, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, and the rulers. These are metaphors for salvation and strength, care and security, provision, protection, and direction for his flock. How beautiful. How beautiful. The Lord cares for his flock in such wondrous ways. He is their shepherd, their caretaker, their provider, their protector. This coming king will shepherd God's people. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a king who will shepherd my people. That was the quote that the Magi gave upon the birth of Jesus. How will this coming king shepherd his people, you ask? Well, the answer permeates the latter half of this passage. First, we see the care of the shepherd as he provides for his people. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers to everyone, the vegetation in the fields. You know, no matter how hard people work, their provision is always out of their hands. Can I get an amen? We can't produce rain can we? Israel did not have control over the forces of nature and therefore were ultimately dependent upon the one who was 
who did. Just like sheep to their shepherd. They needed their shepherd to provide for them, to lead them to the waters of life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And when the coming king arrived, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Of him it is said in Revelation, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Rejoice. The Lord himself in the person of Jesus Christ has and will continue to provide for his people until the day when they have no more need because he has fully and finally become our portion. Hallelujah! Rejoice, rejoice. O Israel, your king has come. Number two. We also see the care of the shepherd as he gathers his people. I will whistle for them and gather them in. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home and gather them. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon Till there is no more room for them. I will whistle for them. That's an interesting phrase, huh? <laughs> the word whistle here refers to the whistle or the pipe that a shepherd would use to summon his flock. David Barron tells the story of meeting a Bedouin shepherd once while they were walking and talking. The man's sheep began to scatter amongst the rocks and all over the fields and behind bushes and all kinds of stuff. And when the shepherd was ready to go, he pulled out this little whistle pipe and began to play it, play it. a pipe that the sheep had been trained to recognize. And so they all began making their way back to him until they had all gathered one place and they set out again. Hmm. Though God's people are scattered throughout the whole earth, this kind and caring shepherd will whistle for, will call them to himself. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The people of God may stray for a while, but he always brings them home. John says that Jesus will gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The Lord himself in the person of Jesus Christ is faithful to call all who are his. He has brought us to himself, and on that final day, he will bring everyone, everybody, every single one of the flock whom he has called. He will bring them to himself. 
on the last day. We talked this morning. There's, there's believers all over the world, past, present, and future, and he will gather us all together before the throne of God. Hallelujah! Rejoice! Rejoice! Your king has come to you, O Israel! Number three, we see the care of the shepherd as he protects his people. Speaking of the people, it says, verse 11 of chapter 10, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in Jesus' name. And they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. He will make them strong. He will guard them, protect them from danger, and bring all who are his safely through to the end. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 was all about this. They concluded with this. I will encamp at my house as a guard. So that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. What does that sound like? Peace. No oppressor shall again march over you. Because of our conquering shepherd king. For now I see you with my own eyes. And Jesus says this. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. <laughs> Just sit in that. Not one of them will be lost. Listen to this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Lays down his life for us, for his flock. The Lord has done for us and is to us all that a shepherd king does and is for his flock. The Lord himself in the person of Jesus Christ has tended, fed, and led people and will continue to tend and feed and protect his people until he has led us all home. Takes the whistle. And he calls. And he gathers us. Rejoice, rejoice, your shepherd, God with us, has come to you, O Israel. What is our application? 
Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. That's it. Behold and rejoice in the advent, the coming of the king. How great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Rejoice as you look back at his first coming and rejoice in great expectation of his second coming. For it is his coming. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come. Let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Writer of Hebrews gives this as a prayer. Now may the God of peace, the God of peace, who brought Again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Oh, is that beautiful? There's the peace. There's the shepherd. There's the Savior King. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. To whom be glory forever and ever. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Help us to adore you. To bring you glory forever and ever. We have been assured of this. We stand in it. We rejoice in it. We rejoice in you coming for us. We rejoice and you will come again on that day, that final day of redemption. And you will gather us to yourself so that we may praise you. Help us to do it now, this Christmas season, to come and adore on bended knee you, Jesus, our King. Amen.